Hills Of, a true crime podcast based out of Austin, Texas. This week, I'm going to be talking about four women, all of whom disappeared in 1976 here in Austin with similar circumstances. The first girl in our story, Brenda Moore, was only 19 years old at the time. Brenda also happens to be Austin's oldest missing persons case, and the anniversary of her disappearance is quickly approaching. Austin is the state capital of Texas, and it's located in the center of the state. It has both scenic, natural views, and the hustle and bustle of big city life. There are a few things everyone knows about Austin. Like we hear, we like to keep it weird, and it's considered the live music capital of the world. Some of our favorite movies were also filmed here, like Kill Bill, Dazed and Confused, and Miss Congeniality. Some would say it's a blue dot in a red sea, but I don't want to get political. You see, in 1976, Austin was a completely different place than it is right now. The population today is around a million people, and in 76, it was just a little over 300,000. And so with a growing population also came a cultural change. And if you ask me, I think Austin is one of the best cities in the world. I'm new to the town, and I have to say, I think I plan on sticking around for a while. So now that we have a little bit of an understanding of what kind of place Austin is, let's just go ahead and dive right in. I'll be telling each young woman's story in the order that they disappeared. Starting with Brenda Moore, who was last seen on March 7th, 76, on the east side of Austin, leaving her place of work around 3.15 p.m. Brenda was a nurse's aide at a nursing home, and I'm unsure of if the place that she worked at was Crestview or Crest Haven. I'm assuming that it's probably not around anymore. 76 was, you know, a hot minute ago, after all. But just a few things about Brenda. Brenda was 5 feet, 125 pounds. She was 20 years old at the time of her disappearance. And she had black hair and brown eyes. And like the other three women that I'll be talking about, Brenda was African-American. Other than that, there isn't a whole lot about the day that she disappeared that we know. There are no photos of Moore, and if you go to our Instagram page, that's why you'll see pictures of three women and then one with a question mark on her face. From what I could gather, the reason that we don't have a photo of Brenda is because those photos had been lost in a house fire. When and where, I'm not sure. But I do know a few things about Brenda. She was married at the time, and her maiden name was not Moore. Her maiden name possibly could have been Breedlove, but I haven't been able to confirm that. The man that Brenda was married to at the time's name was Willie. He stated that they had separated four months prior to her disappearance, and he thinks that she simply skipped town with another man. I also know that Brenda had a new boyfriend at this time. But what he looked like, or what his name is, I don't know. A lot of information surrounding Brenda's disappearance is minimal. We don't really know a lot about Brenda or the men that were supposedly in her life at the time that she disappeared. You know, I find it odd that she was last seen leaving her place of work, but nobody knows what she was wearing. I also find it odd that they haven't ever been able to find her maiden name and maybe possibly go back and look through yearbook photos. And 40 years ago doesn't seem like that long ago, and you know, it, it really isn't. But the way that cases were handled back then is so much differently than the way cases are handled today. Now you have somebody who takes photos, solely taking photos of a crime scene. And today we have detectives, somebody who is only focused on finding a person or finding out what happened to someone. But in 1976, police officers, they were doing all of that. They were taking the photos, they were collecting evidence, they were also the detectives. And I'm sure they were understaffed and overworked, just like a lot of police officers in the United States today. You know, but I do know that, that somebody knows what happened to Brenda, and I hope that closure is brought to her family sooner than later. Today, Brenda would be 64 years old, 
and again, she is Austin, Texas's oldest missing persons case. One last thing though, before we move on, and one of the things that's gonna tie Brenda's case to some of the other women, in my opinion, is that on March 12th, five days after Brenda was reported missing, her vehicle was found on the 1900 block of Kalito Street. So if you're familiar with Austin, Kalito Street is on the east side. It's very close to Martin Luther King Boulevard. And the east side is where three of the four women who I'm gonna be talking about disappeared from. And the east side of Austin today is, you know, very similar to what the east side of Austin was in 76. There are still a ton of music venues and bars, and it's a very, I don't know, happening place, a fun place to be. Lots of nightlife, and I do know quite a few people who live on the east side, and they really enjoy it, you know? But unfortunately, Brenda wasn't the last person to go missing, and on May 16th, 1976, Jennifer Joyce Barton was last seen also on the east side around 11th and Waller Street. Jennifer was 19 at the time, 5 feet, 7 inches, and 135 pounds. The thing that really sticks out to me with these four women, and I know I've only spoke of one of them so far and just diving into the second, but they all led completely different lifestyles. And for there to be so many similarities in this case, um, in these cases, it's, it's kind of mind-boggling. Jennifer was a known sex worker in Austin, and to be honest, she was the one woman who I was able to find the most information about, which, you know, I I think is odd, and I don't know if that's because she was known to law enforcement or because she had a record, but it is interesting. At the time that Jennifer disappeared, she had freckles on her cheek, a small mole on the top of her lip, and a scar on her right calf. She was wearing a burgundy bodysuit and sandals. And she had also told people that she was going to be going to the movies that evening with a friend. Who this friend is? Well, they've never been named, and I also find that odd. <laughs> Barton was uh, short on cash, and it's said that she had stopped in at a bar where she met two men who offered her $25 for sex, and she accepted. Personally, I think that Barton probably wasn't going to the movies that evening. She was probably going to work and earn money, but maybe she didn't want someone to know that that's what she was doing. You know, sex work often comes with shame, and let it be known that sex work is one of the oldest professions in the world for a woman. And like I always say, you know, to each their own, what you want to do with your time and your body is your choice, and Who am I to judge? Who is anyone to judge? I think Barton had fallen on hard times and this was a quick way to earn money. Um, We know that Barton dropped out of high school uh, when she was 18 and she began relations with a man who was not uh, probably the best person in the world. He was a drug dealer and he also became her pimp. So with that lifestyle, um, you know, comes trials, and I think Barton was, or, you know, Barton, she had succumbed to that, and unfortunately could possibly be, you know, why she's missing, why something more than likely bad happened to her. So back to the story of going to the movies with a friend, you know, the reason that she was in this bar where she had met two men who offered her that $25 for sex and she accepted. Why I say it twice is because this is essentially the last time that anyone saw Jennifer Barton. 
Witnesses state that one of the men Barton had spent about 30 minutes talking to left out the front door, while the other one left out of the back door. One of the men was described around 5 feet 4 inches with a thin build, and the other was described around 5 feet 6 inches with a heavy build and an afro. Both of these men were also described as being Afro-American, just like Jennifer and Brenda and the other two women that I'm going to be talking about. You know, later on in this case, I'm also going to bring up Samuel Little and his possible connection to one, two, three, you know, maybe all four of these women. And I mention him now because if you've watched Mine Hunters, <laughs> for example, or you are truly a true crime junkie, you know that profiling is is big in solving cases, and we know that people usually do not kill outside of their race. I am not a police officer, and I am definitely not an FBI agent. Um, so why that is the conclusion that was reached, I don't know. But it's a fact, and we have to consider that when thinking about cases like this. After leaving the bar with these two men, it's said that Barton then got into a brown tan colored van having a large whip-like antenna, teardrop-shaped windows, a spare tire on the rear, and a California license plate. Witnesses then report seeing the man who left out the back door walk around the corner where the van stopped and picked him up. Supposedly, a friend of Barton's was standing outside of the bar that she had been in and left with these two men, um, and the friend reports that the van drove down the street, turned around, and came back by. And when the van drove back by, she said that she did not see Barton inside. A little bit more about Barton. She grew up in an upper-middle-class family, and like I had previously stated, she dropped out of high school, she met a guy who wasn't the greatest, he became her pimp, and eventually he was in prison. After her boyfriend was in prison, Barton's current pimp was murdered in a robbery that had gone wrong at a hotel in Austin. A lot of people think that she may have had something to do with that, um, set him up, and friends of Barton's had told investigators that she was afraid that his friends would possibly seek revenge. Shortly after her pimp was murdered, Barton's apartment was broken into and vandalized. Apparently, a pair of her underwear had been pinned on the wall, and the word blood was written next to them in red paint. But whether this break-in and her pimp's murder had anything to do with one another, were connected in her disappearance, we don't know. Like previously mentioned, Barton did have a short record that included robbery, assault, and prostitution charges. She had mentioned to friends about moving to California, which is slightly odd because, you know, she was last seen getting into a van with a California license plate. So being known to law enforcement, I think it's important to mention that Barton has not been arrested since 1976, and foul play is assumed in her disappearance. Today, Jennifer would be 65 years old, and she is currently listed as an endangered missing person. One last thing before we move on, I think it's important to mention that while Jennifer was last seen on May 16th, she was not reported missing until May 26th, which is five days prior to when the third woman in our story went missing. Deborah K. Stewart was last seen on May 21st, 1976, leaving her place of work. Are we starting to see a pattern here yet? <laughs> no. 
No, just me. Okay. Brenda worked in Hyde Park at a Sears, and she suffered from a chronic kidney disease. It's reported that she had not been feeling well that day, and she left work early to go to the doctor. Unlike Brenda's co-workers, Deborah's co-workers do remember what she was wearing that day. Blue patchwork jeans, a blue long-sleeved blouse, a blue bandana, a wide belt, and brown shoes. However, like Brenda, there is not a whole lot of information surrounding Deborah's disappearance. At the time Deborah disappeared, she was 19 years old, 5 feet, 1 inches, 131 pounds, she had black hair, and brown eyes. The next day, between 8 and 9 p.m., her vehicle was found on the 1800 block of Ferdinand Street, which, like Brenda, is off of Martin Luther King Boulevard on the east side, and I think one of the craziest things about the abandonment of her car, it was located less than one block from where Brenda's car had been located two months prior, and just like Brenda, the keys were in the ignition and the car was locked. One witness reported seeing an African-American male around 5 feet 9 to 10 inches, 190 pounds, clean-cut, well-dressed, wearing a button-down shirt and dark-colored pants exiting Deborah's vehicle. The only other things that I know about Brenda don't really have anything to do with her disappearance. She, at the time, was a communications major at the University of Texas, and like most 19-year-old girls in college, she had a boyfriend, and at the time, he was questioned, but there was no evidence to prove that he knew anything in regards to her disappearance or what could have possibly happened to her. Unlike the other two women in this story, there was a private investigator that was hired by Deborah's parents to look into her disappearance, but it's reported that he, he didn't find anything, that no leads emerged, and, you know, again, we're at a dead end. What happened to Deborah? I also know that there were no signs of foul play inside of her vehicle, and her apartment on the 2700 block of Manor Road was left clean, neat, and none of her belongings were missing. I also know that she may have possibly known some of the same people that Jennifer Barton knew due to frequenting some of the same bars and music venues on the east side. But this has not been confirmed, and like Barton, Deborah is listed as an endangered missing person. So, if you look up any of the three women that I've talked about, they're usually mentioned together. Their stories are told, just like I told them, in order from the time that they went missing. But through my research, I found that a fourth woman went missing in Austin in 1976 under very similar circumstances. And this young woman's name was Pinky Mae Davis Heron. Heron was her married name, and Davis was her maiden name. Pinky was a mechanic, and she enjoyed working with her hands. She was also a drummer, and like all of the women in this story, she was very known to frequent the east side. Pinky often played shows at music venues on the east side. So again, there's a possibility that she maybe did not know Deborah or Brenda or Jennifer personally, but more than likely probably crossed paths with them at some time. Unlike the three other women that I've previously spoken about, Pinky had children. She married in 1970 when she was only 14 years old and was divorced by 75. 
If you look into Pinky Mae Davis Heron's case, you'll see that sites like the Doe Network and the Charlie Project, they all have her listed as going missing in 79. And I'll tell you why. So when Pinky first went missing, police didn't take it seriously. They didn't see any reason to suspect foul play or to think that, you know, something bad could have possibly happened to her. And because her children were so young, they were not able to speak up for her or fight for her. And I would say they were probably, you know, they were so young that they they probably didn't have any understanding of what was really going on other than that their mother was just gone. She had left them. So when Pinky's youngest daughter was considered an adult, which at that time I believe was 16, she reported her mother missing and by this time you know we're in the 80s and she couldn't remember when her mom went missing she just knew that she was little and i don't know if family wasn't around to help remind her or jog her memory and again who am i to judge i don't know but she just told the police my you know my mom is missing and nobody's heard from her nobody's seen her and i think that she went missing in 1979 but her daughter didn't stop there and she was able to speak with family and through speaking with them she realized that pinky did go missing in 76 she did not go missing in 79 i struggled with if i should say that four women went missing from austin in 1976 because pinky went missing from delvel which is a suburb of Austin. It is close to the airport and it's unclear if the area that she went missing from in Delvel is considered part of Austin city limits or not. So her case is not handled by the Austin city police. It's handled by Travis County. And I wonder if that's why a connection hasn't been made prior to this because Pinky, just like the other three women I've spoken about, was very young. She was 19 and she had black hair and brown eyes and she looked a lot like Jennifer and Deborah and possibly Brenda, you know? I can only speculate. So to tell Pinky's story from beginning to end or the end that we know. She was last seen in September of 76. It's reported Labor Day weekend and The last person that saw her saw Pinky driving, which, if you can remember, Brenda was last seen driving, Deborah was last seen driving, which makes me wonder if, you know, they stopped and picked up a hitchhiker. Maybe they picked up the same hitchhiker, but usually when somebody stops their car, it's because they know that person, which means that these cases might not be related at all. They might not have anything to do with one another. But we also know that there's a really good chance that some of these women knew each other and, you know, if not, at least knew some of the same people. In my research, I found that the place that Pinky's car was found, which I labeled on the map as her last known location. If you get onto our Instagram, you'll see the four photos of the women I'm talking about. And if you scroll to the right, you will then see a map. The red triangles indicate the last known location and the orange triangles indicate where the women's vehicles were found. 
I didn't give Pinky an orange triangle because her vehicle was found at the Texas Golden Nugget, which is a motel, and at the time it was a motel and a lounge. So Pinky just has one triangle, but you should know that that is where her vehicle was found, and it's where I am putting her location as the last known place that she was. Really, the last time anyone saw Pinky, she was driving down the road, and a friend says that she saw Pinky, and Pinky honked, and she waved. Because three out of the four women that I've talked about this week were last seen in a vehicle, you then have to think, okay, if they didn't stop for somebody that they know, then maybe possibly this is a carjacking. Maybe somebody was waiting in the back of these women's vehicle. Maybe it was the same person. Maybe it was a different person. I I don't know, and we might never know, but we, we can be hopeful. So the fact that Pinky honked and waved, information is limited. I don't know if that was the norm for her. I don't know if she was a friendly person and enjoyed small talk and would have normally honked and waved, but this encounter police take as her last known sighting. She was on her way to her third job. She wasn't just a mechanic. She wasn't just a musician. She also worked at the Texas Golden Nugget. In my research, I found that the Texas Golden Nugget burned down, but I was able to actually call the Texas Golden Nugget and I don't think somebody would have picked up the phone if it burned down. <laughs> so I, I now know that the Texas Golden Nugget is still up and running. Uh, there's no longer a lounge, but it is a motel. And the man on the phone was able to confirm that this, yes, is the same Texas Golden Nugget that was around in the 70s in Delville, Texas. Today, Pinky would be 63 and she is listed as missing but not endangered. So now I'm gonna dive into some of the similarities between these four women. And some of them have already been mentioned, so please bear with me. What we know, we know that all four of them were African-American. Pinky though, however, was biracial. She was also Latino. We know that they were all pretty much the same age from 19 to 20 years old at the time. We know they all had black hair, brown eyes, they all were known to frequent the east side. Three out of four of them went missing from the east side. Two of them, their car was found within, well, technically less than a block from each other and under the same condition. Doors locked and keys in the ignition. We also know that they were pretty much the same height and same weight, except for Barton, who was slightly taller and we know that three out of four women were last seen driving. I think that given the time, especially between Jennifer Barton's disappearance and Deborah Stewart's disappearance, five days from one another, it's quite possible that, you know, they may be linked. And I think it's very possible that Brenda and Deborah's cases are for sure linked. Their vehicles were found I repeat, less than one block from one another, and the keys were in the ignition, and the door is locked. I, I don't think that is anything other than 
a coincidence. And then the fact that all four of these women are still missing. I know that Deborah's DNA has been tested against unidentified persons. I know that Jennifer's DNA has been tested against unidentified persons. And obviously, I'm sitting here talking about them right now, so there was no connection. But I don't know if Brenda or Pinky's DNA has ever been tested against a Jane Doe. I can hope so. I know that Texas has some of the highest rates in the United States of unidentified persons. In Travis County alone, there are four unidentified persons. Three of them are male, and one of them gender cannot be determined. And I'm sure that police have done their job, and I'm sure that all four of these women, if they have DNA for all four of these women, that that unknown gender Jane John Doe has been tested against them, but you still have to wonder. There's no report of this. I can't tell you that with confidence. I can only tell you that with a sense of hopefulness. So now we'll talk about differences, and I pondered this for a while. I think deep down, the only difference is that all four of these women led pretty different lifestyles. Pinky was the only one of them that was a mother. Jennifer was the only one who was a sex worker. Deborah, the only one who was attending college. And Brenda, we know, was married. Um, Pinky had been married, but she wasn't married at the time. And even when it comes to occupation, you know, Brenda was a nurse. Jennifer was a sex worker. Deborah was a student and worked a part-time job at a retail store. And Pinky, she did a little bit of everything. She was a mechanic, possibly a bartender or worked front desk at the Texas Golden Nugget. She was also a musician. So other than location, these women didn't really have anything tying them together in their everyday lives. And to wrap it all up, We know that few details, I have given you everything that I know, and what I know is very minimal. From what I can tell, there really hasn't been much that has come of these cases over the years. I know that at one time, they thought that possibly three of those four women, Pinky's not included in this, but they did search for them in the Jonestown Massacre. Which, believe me, I think is a little bizarre, and I I don't even know if I can go there, but it is odd. Um, but I do know that police did rule out Brenda, Jennifer, and Deborah as being among those 900-plus victims that were found at Jonestown. And if you're wondering what is Jonestown, I will not be getting into it. Uh, that's a whole episode and a half but it is a very interesting story. And if you are interested in cults, intrigued by that kind of thing, I urge you to look into it. And lastly, my own little theory. Uh, There is some rumor on the interweb about it, but the possibility of Samuel Little, uh, now known as the most prolific serial killer in the United States, having something to do with, you know, one, two, maybe all four of these women. 
I think that these, you know, beyond Jennifer Barton, these women don't really fit the profile of most of Samuel Little's victims. And if you don't know who Samuel Little is, he was caught in 2012 after his DNA matched to three cold cases in California. But, you know, he killed in what we know at least 19 states, and he has since confessed to at least 93 murders. And the FBI have, they've been able to confirm at least 50 of these confessions. Little is very interesting, um, and believe me, I'm like swallowing as I say that. He, I'll give him credit, uh, he draws, he's an, he's an artist, and when asked, you know, what are you good at? He, you know, says killing people and drawing, and that's blunt and honest, and I guess that is what they're asking for, honesty. Since being captured in 2012 and convicted of murder in 2014, these previously mentioned three cold cases in California with the DNA, he has also been linked to a Texas murder. That is of Denise Christie in West Texas. She was found three weeks after she had been reported missing and she had been strangled to death. Uh, Christie died in 94, so that is a little bit out of the range. Um, It's a lot out of the range of the time that the four women that I've been talking about went missing, but we also know that Little has at least one unmatched confession to the murder of a African-American female in Houston, Texas, sometime between 1976 and 1979, which much better fits with the four women's timeline of disappearance that I've been speaking about. I do think that I jumped ahead a little bit. I gave this awful man credit for something and then didn't explain. I, you know, mentioned that he was a great artist and Wow, did I say that he was a great artist, or did I do that just now? Um, He's an artist, and I I mean, like, I'll give him credit again. He draws better than I do, but that is his thing. That's what has helped police solve some of these cold cases. Um, Jane Doe's that have been sitting on the shelf all of these years because he draws them. He has this memory that is quite terrifying of, I mean, most of the victims of Samuel Little were strangled to death, and to be able to remember the details, the eye color, the hair color, the weight, all of these different things, I'm, I mean, we are two different people, I, I, couldn't live with myself if I did something like that to someone else. I don't think many of us could. Um, but Samuel Little is, is different. He, he, he can, and he seems to be living with himself just fine. Um, but that is his thing, uh, you know, other than killing people. He draws his victims. And if you look into Samuel Little, you you will see his drawings, and they're not portraits by any means, Uh, maybe the idea of a portrait that you or I would think of, but whenever I came across an article 
about Denise Christie, uh, his 94 victim in West Texas, it was uncanny the resemblance of the photo that was provided and the drawing that he made. I mean, truly uncanny. So I think that Samuel Little is not someone who should be ruled out completely in Deborah, Brenda, Jennifer, or Pinky's case. I think that that possibility is something that life could be given to. Um, But we do know that the men that were last seen with Jennifer Barton were smaller. They were short. And Samuel Little uh, was a very large man. Still is a very large man. So maybe, maybe not. We also know that he mainly acted alone. And we also know that most of his victims were found. He wasn't super concerned with concealing their bodies. And since you have four women who all disappeared within a very short time from one another, and none of them have been found, I think that even lowers the possibility of Samuel Little even more. And also, I think I'd mentioned previously, just they don't fit his normal MO. He usually hung out with the women that he ended up killing for a couple days. They would commit petty crimes together and you know at some time he just decided okay I don't want to hang out with you anymore and he would turn down a dirt road and strangle them to death so to wrap up Samuel Little he was a serial killer who is now incarcerated and serving life in prison in California he began killing in the 70s and believed to keep living that lifestyle up until 2005. So, you know, he also targeted hitchhikers and sex workers, which we know one of our women in this story was a sex worker. But again, the people that she was last seen with, they don't, neither one of them match Samuel Little's description. And currently we don't have any known cases of Samuel Little's that happened in Austin, Texas. I just want to say thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. I can say that it's a little rocky. I'm very new to this and honestly I didn't know that when I started this you didn't have to record everything at once. (laughs) It's been a journey and I can also say that I'm enjoying it. And I hope that I can continue to do this. To find more information about this week's case, you can visit our Instagram at In the Hills of Podcast to view a map of where the four women in this week's episode were last seen. You can also see what Samuel Little looked like in the late 70s. And lastly, if you have any information regarding the disappearance of Brenda, Deborah, or Jennifer, we urge you to call the Austin City Police at 512-974-5250. Or, if you have any information regarding the disappearance of Pinky May, we urge you to contact the Travis County Sheriff at 512-854-3234. If you have a story that you would like to have featured on In the Hills of, you can email us at inthehillsup at gmail.com. 
Thank you again for listening to this week's episode. I hope you will tune back in next Thursday. I will be speaking with John Kilmeyer, who will be helping me cover a case from the hills of West Virginia.